come December 21st, 2021, I wake up at 5 a.m. I'm pacing the room for about an hour. My partner's asking me, hey, what's going on? I'm like, look, I know how I would look at someone who's about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but I think we need to start a new country. And so we drew inspiration from the U.S. founding fathers, actually, specifically Alexander Hamilton. It, it literally says, we are gathered here to decide the most important question, whether it's possible for societies of men to form a new government through reflection and choice, or are we forever destined to depend on our governance through accident and force? And I remember just reading that and being like, that's our why. No modern day nation state in Africa was created by reflection and choice. It has always been through accident and force. And so what would it look like if we could organize around shared values of scale powered by the internet, right? And so we set out to do that and we laid out four phases of our master plan, right? Phase one is... Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Ece Emole, founder of Afropolitan, the first digital nation that enables all Africans to live abundant lives. In this conversation with Ece, we do cover a lot of ground, starting from what it means to build a nation that is based on the internet, what it takes to build a community, and how to build a product to enable the community itself to generate the right economics incentive and a clear regulatory landscape. So I really, really hope that you will enjoy this episode as much as I did. Eche, welcome to Polyweb. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I'm very, very excited for this interview because you are the founder of Afropolitan and I would love for you you know, to, to introduce yourself to listeners and introduce also Afropolitan, because I'm sure you'll do a much better job at it than I can, yeah. I can ever do. It's, uh, it's something I'm always happy to talk about. Like, this is, I think this is life's purpose for me. My name is Eche. I'm one of the co-founders of Afropolitan. Afropolitan's mission is to build a digital nation that enables all Africans to live abundant lives, right? To achieve that digital nation, the, the theory behind that is what does the internet enable us to be able to do today, right? We've been able to start new companies on the internet. We've been able to start new currencies on the internet. Can we start a new country on the internet? Uh, this is something that Balaji uh, Srinivasan basically proposed in his article, How to Start a New Country. The best way, I think, to think through Afropolitan's journey is to think about it in three phases, right? Phase one of Afropolitan is an organization we started while in law school in 2016 in San Francisco, catering to the African diaspora through events. So think Afrobeats parties, concerts, festivals. A significant highlight of what we achieved in that phase was something called the Year of Return that happened in Ghana in 2019, where about a million plus people from the diaspora headed to Ghana. It generated about $2 billion worth of economic activity in Ghana, right? And Phase two starts in 2020, where we're looking to redo the year of return, and then COVID happens. COVID decimates the entire in real life events industry, and we were forced to pivot, but we pivoted into media, but through a social audio app called Clubhouse. On Clubhouse, we were able to build an online community between I and my co-founder of 200,000 people collectively. What Clubhouse allowed us to see and to do was show a capacity for collective action, to, to have a highly aligned online community, right? And then the other 
parts start off in phase three, right? Phase three then was in April 2021 when Balaji Srinivasan, he's the former CTO of Coinbase and also a former partner on A16Z, he wrote an article called How to Start a New Country. And in the article, he proposes this idea of a network state. I remember the first time I'm reading it, I was like, hmm, there's a lot of theory here, but I actually understand what he's talking about because I've lived it. This has been my lived experience. There was a particular quote, though, in the article where he says, because the brand new is unthinkable, we fight over the old. And I remember reading that and just it felt like a challenge. Like, what does that mean? Like, especially in in the context of being African, right? When he's saying, because the brand new is unthinkable, we fight over the old. What's unthinkable for people living in the West is maybe going to Mars or going to to space. What's unthinkable for us in the African context is good roads, stable electricity, light, water, infrastructure, things that have already actually been done in other places in the world, but have not necessarily been executed on in Africa. And I said to myself, like, that cannot be. Like, that doesn't even make any sense that we have different definitions of what unthinkable means for different places and different people in the world, where Elon might think what's unthinkable is going to Mars and living in Mars, whereas somebody in Africa could think what's unthinkable is just having good governance, right? And and that just blew my mind with that quote. And so for the next for the rest of the year, we red pilled our way into Web3, learning more about blockchain, learning more about the principles behind it, what the technology could actually enable us to unlock. And so come December 21st, 2021, I wake up at 5 a.m. I'm pacing the room for about an hour. My partner's asking me, hey, what's going on? I'm like, look, I know how I would look at someone who's about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but I think we need to start a new country. And she's like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah. And so we drew inspiration from the U.S. founding fathers, actually, specifically Alexander Hamilton. In the Federalist one, he basically makes this case of, he's, he, it, it literally says, we are gathered here to decide the most important question, right? Whether it's possible for societies of men to form a new government through reflection and choice, or are we forever destined to depend on our governance through accident and force? And I remember just reading that and being like, that's our why. Right, no modern day nation state in Africa was created by reflection and choice, it has always been through accident and force. And so, what would it look like if we could organize around shared values at scale powered by the internet? Right, not by religion, not by tribe, not by race, but around shared values and purpose, right, to accomplish a particular mission. And so, we set out to do that and we laid out four phases of our master plan. Right. Phase one is building a network, a private network of the best of the best Africa and the diaspora and, and our allies have to offer across the board. Right. And then seeding that network with our passports. So we started off with our first 500 passports and sold out of those. Right. Phase two for us was society as a service, which is how do you build a, an, an app or a super app or a platform that powers this digital nation so that it unlocks the digital economy within this nation, right? And we're happy to announce that we're launching that app soon. It's called AfroPass. I'm really, really excited. Phase three for us is what we're calling the minimum viable state, which is how do you build the credibility needed to be viewed as a country one day? Last September, we got recognized by the New York Stock Exchange as the first ever internet country for the African diaspora. Today, we provide visa and arrival services for Afropolitans or anyone looking to go to four African countries today, whether it's Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and Tanzania. And then phase, 
four is the foundation, the land piece, right? We want to innovate on that. We want to combine two concepts together. One is a Chinatown and the other one is an embassy. So take, for example, the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, for example, is a sovereign territory in a host government. In Chinatowns, they have their own post office, their own banks, their own malls, their own infrastructure within those towns. We want to combine those two concepts together to give us an Afro town. So what does that look like, right? If you're an Afropolitan citizen, in summary, if you're an Afropolitan citizen, you're able to navigate the world with the Afropolitan passport. You're able to make payments for goods and services using the Afropolitan or Afropass, right? You're able to also gain physical entry into locations across the world, major cities across the world, into Afrotowns located across the world, sovereign Afrotowns at that. And so that is in a nutshell the vision of what we're pushing at Afropolitan. Okay. Echa. It's a mouthful, I know. This is enough <laughs> to unpack, to cover the entire podcast. And I feel like it's yeah. not even enough. We will need at least a part two of these. So yeah. I'm going to take some steps back uh, and we're going to unpack mm. what you said in those past five minutes, you know, one by one. Mm. And I want to go back uh, actually to the why you are doing this, you know, what should I and listeners know about you that you felt so passionately about the idea of building a nation? So I, I think for me, I moved to the U.S. when I was 15 with my parents. I, I won the life lottery or like I'm privileged, right? And we moved at 15 to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is one of the most densest places of talent in the world, right? So I got to go to a private school. I think I was the only Black kid in the school. I came out and I was one of the first young African immigrants who broke into tech. And I also catered to those immigrants as well. So what did that look like? We were, we would do the events and you have Nigerians, Guineans, people from all nationalities in Africa just there. And what you would notice was there would be no fights. There would be no issues. And, and what I realized was there's no tribalism when everyone is abundant. When you're all earning six figures, there's nothing to fight over, right? So what you would see then where people, we would all go out together as a group or go to an event and you would see people rushing to put their cards down to cover for the group, right? And I was saying to myself, do we, have we ever really had issues or where our issues stemmed from scarcity and survival? See, when you're in that mindset, you make different decisions. But when you're in an abundant set, this is how you live. And I think the Bay Area served as a sandbox for what this nation or digital nation would look like, right? Where people are organizing around shared values, not around tribe, not around religion, not around whatever isms that exist, right? But around like, look, we have the same values. We see the world the same way. How can we do work together, right? And I think that's something that, say what you may about Silicon Valley, but there's an abundance mindset and approach in that area that a lot of immigrants were also able to tap into. And what you then saw were people now playing that out in their everyday interactions. And I think when I, when I then would travel back to Africa, specifically Nigeria, and I'm Nigerian, what I would see were the people who didn't get to get a visa to leave, right? And the circumstances that we've been forced to grow up in, right? And so what does that look like today in Africa? You have a situation where, honestly, it's basically become American or die trying, right? Everyone's looking for an exit, right? And I think what that then does for a society is friends can grow up together. Families can grow up together. People are leaving families. They're not seeing their families for 10, 15, 20 years or never at all, Right. And I said to myself, why should we accept that as a people? Like, why should we accept this reality as a people? Whereas 
when I'm in the U.S., or whether you go to certain towns in Europe, you see people say, hey, my family has been here 50 years. My family has been here 100 years. My family has been here for the last 300 years. And you're saying, why can't we have that same compounding effect as Africans where you get to grow old with your family, with your friends, with your community? Whereas we're always making decisions out of survival because we're chasing optionality and opportunity, right? And I'm not saying that it's wrong to chase those things, but I'm just saying the situation that we're in has forced us to live life from the place of being outsiders, right? And I think there's a different sort of psychological anxiety that you tap into when the way you see the world is just from the place of being an outsider constantly. You have to build systems and products and ways that include you because you're not going to be included from the get-go, right? And so that that to me is the motivation behind this. There's several more, but that's, that's just a, a, a quick snippet. Yeah, I, I can see that. Like for people who are not familiar, you know, with the concept of the network state, because you mentioned uh, and, you know, this book that you wrote, The Network State. Could you please explain uh, the main concepts uh, behind the network states? Uh, and what is the difference between the theory and what is mm-hmm. actually like uh, building uh, a network <laughs> state yeah. in Afropolitan? Because, like, uh, yeah. you know, like, yeah. there is usually, like, uh, some difference between books and yeah. reality. Always, always a difference. So I would say the definition that we use, and it's the same one that Balaji used, a network state is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that's able to crowdfund territory around the world and eventually gain diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. The the end state of that, the diplomatic recognition of pre-existing states is where your sovereignty comes into play. Right, so then we can break down the steps. So a highly aligned online community, that was our clubhouse, right? We had a clubhouse, Afropolitan Lounge, online community, highly aligned. A capacity for collective action, we showed that when we were able to organize people to fund things like the police brutality protests in Nigeria called Ansars. We were able to organize people to fund the refugee crisis in Ethiopia during the Ethiopia Civil War. So again, a capacity for collective action. You're able to crowdfund territory around the world. So think about that as something as similar as maybe even WeWorks or or just having solar houses around the world, right? So different solar houses around the world coming together, and then you build on top of that. And then the final piece is gaining diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. So that just plays out in the history of the world, right? Think about the countries that got recognized even most recently, whether it was Estonia in the 90s after the USSR broke up and their first recognition came from Iceland, right? Whether it's mostly any other countries, the US, when it was fighting for independence, I think France was one of the first ones who recognized them as a, as a country and came into, the, came into the, the war as an ally, right? And so there are multiple historical examples of being recognized by other countries diplomatically that recognized you as a nation state, right? And so the difference between the nation state and a network state is one is defined by geographical boundaries, and the network state is defined by the internet, right? So it's borderless in that in that way. So the idea is you're leveraging the digital aspect of the internet to power your services from a government from a governmental perspective. But would you say that that's the only real definition of a nation? I don't know. Like, if you think about it, you know, a nation. Unless it's the case with Africa, the Europeans sat down on the table and just drew the borders. Uh, right? Uh, which makes Afropolitan necessary, exactly for these reasons. But 
otherwise most western nations at least we're born and are together more than and are defined more by that than just land you know or geographical boundaries i agree, I agree. So, so let me let me rephrase that. So I would say when you think about a nation state, what comes first is the nation, right? Before the state. The nation is shared consciousness, right? Shared ideals, or it could be similar tribes. It could be similar religions. They, they, it could be organized around different principles. So if you take, for example, maybe Estonia, for example, these are, these are people who are united by their, like, we're all together. It's a homogeneous society, right? You could see com- uh, countries like Singapore, not everyone is, is people are from different races, right? So you're organized around most likely shared values or purpose, right? And so the nation comes first, for sure. The state is the organizing principle, the government of the nation, right? That's most likely or sometimes usually elected by the people within that nation to say, hey, govern us and apply the rules and enforce the rules, right? And so, yes, the nation state is comprised much more of that. But what I'm saying is all the things I just mentioned that a nation state has, a network state already has, but the, the singular, defi- singular differentiation between the two is a network state needs a nation, you need people, it needs ideals, it needs laws, it needs a government, right? But where it's located most likely is is on the internet versus in a nation state that's defined by geographical borders. There's a there's an end and start there. There's a beginning and end of where your nation state starts and begins, right? Or it starts and ends. So you can't just go past Russia's border and into Estonia and say, hey, this is still Estonia or into Finland, right? So there's a, you are, you are defined by your geographical boundaries because that's where your nation state is located in. A network state is not defined by those geographical boundaries or, or it's not, restricted by those geographical boundaries if that makes sense so what are the boundaries of a network state if any you know and how do you define those because you mentioned that mm-hmm. a network state still needs some element mm-hmm. like he needs a, an mm-hmm. ideal or a sure belief in its a government it needs some sort of uh, mm-hmm. economic activities mm-hmm. and Obama. incentives, right, to be defined uh, mm-hmm. a state and not just mm-hmm. a community. I, I think when I think about network states, there are governing principles that I think there. Um, one is you have to have the freedom of mobility, right? The second one is you have to have the freedom to transact, right? So it really involves going back to first principles and saying, we have been able to disrupt almost every other industry in the world with technology, but we have not disrupted governance in the last 200 years, right? And so governance has seems to have been stuck in a pre-period. like period. And we're saying like the world we live in today requires us to be more and requires our governments to be much more flexible. It can't just be what it was like 200 years ago and be stuck in place, right? And so for me, when I think about a network state and the boundaries around a network state, the, the biggest boundaries are just the internet, right? What are you actually able to do or not do? Are you able to actually secure your internet for people to actually leverage it for the services? If the internet is down, then how they might not be able to get to those services, right? If you if you're dealing with hostile governments like what happened or what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, where Russia's like I can just knock down your country infrastructure and you don't have access to the internet, are you able to then get a Starlink in place to then leverage that? There there are quite a few boundaries for network states, right? I wouldn't say like it's 
it's not it's without boundaries but what i'm saying is the world in which a network state exists in is one in which it's borderless and also has freedom to transact so what does freedom to transact mean it means you should be able to send money to anyone in the world and they get it within seconds they don't have to go through all the hoops that you have to go through today in traditional finance right so if i want to send money to sarah in berlin i don't need to like jump through a thousand hoops just to send you money it should you should get it in seconds and until we get to that point, we still have so much work to do across the world in, 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 in that progress, right? Because when you have the freedom to transact, it unlocks prosperity, right? And that's something that Africans don't have at scale. We're not just able to send money freely to one another, even across borders, right? So for today, if you're in Ghana and you want to send money to somewhere in Nigeria, that money first has to go to New York City Bank, get charged fees before it goes to Nigeria, and then you're asking yourself, who made these rules? Who do these rules serve? Because they don't serve the people who are actually sending money, right? Today, if I'm in Nigeria and I'm navigating or, or, or if I'm visiting Nigeria, even though I have U.S. bank accounts, I'm not able to sometimes access those bank accounts. And then when you contact your bank to ask why, like till, till now, I've been locked out of my Chase account. I just haven't even had time to call them because I was traveling through Africa and they blocked my access to their account. And then you call them to say, okay, what's the reason why I'm not able to log into an account that has my own money? They'll say stuff like, well, you know, you were traveling across Nigeria and, you know, it's, it's potential fraud and we're, we're really protecting you, right? And I'm asking them, okay, pull up the data on your service for the top 10 countries where fraud happens, right? And I know Nigeria is on that list, right? But do you ban all those top 10 countries as well? And then there's silence, right? So I'm like, okay, so this is not a data decision. This is arbitrary. And it's arbitrary because we don't have the same power and influence as those top 10 countries. You're not going to ban a China or a Russia or an India from your platform. That's not going to happen. So you feel it's within your right to ban countries in Nigeria or, in, or countries like Nigeria or countries in Africa because we have no power or leverage. And so what that says to someone like me is we just need to go get power and leverage. And part of that is utilizing the, the benefits of a network state. If you can build better governance and better financial system infrastructure, you can give your people leverage so that they're able to navigate the world from a place of power and not from a place of, like, depending on people's benevolence or, or, or goodness as they navigate through borders. And I don't think that that's the right way for us to build out a nation state, or, and, and that's why we're looking to build out a network state instead. Okay, so let's again take a step back one second, and I want mm -hmm. you, you know, to go back uh, to that moment when you were pacing pacing the, the floor the room. Mm -hmm. and and you went out and said you know maybe this might sound crazy but i think we need to build a network state yeah what is from that moment onwards you know that you say those words mm -hmm. what happened what did yeah. you do in sequence that led you to start building afropolitan so I think the first thing was in, in pacing that hour, because I remember the thought, because I had, had trouble sleeping, right? And I could tell like there was something heavy on my mind and I didn't necessarily know what it was. So when I woke up, I'm pacing the room trying to like figure out what is my brain trying to tell me? It felt like one of those lucid dream moments. And when I was then pacing the room, I think I started reflecting on the issues, whether it was personal issues or larger micro issues or government issues that we faced as Africans. And then when the thought came to, it, it kept on coming back to what is the biggest platform you can build that is somewhat indestructible 
and it's not going to be an app. It's not going to be a company. What is like the vessel you could use to get your people from like a Noah's Ark perspective to freedom? And it was like, it's a country, but this time it can't be a country that's limited by geographical boundaries. It has to be something that's borderless. And so once that thought hit me, I was like, wow, okay, that's, that seems like a solution, but what does that entail? Right. Because when you go out into the world and you say, hey, we're going to go build a new country, you have to be ready to be mocked. You have to be ready to be to be humiliated. You have to be ready for people to laugh at you. Right. And then also just personally. Right. Like, what does that mean in terms of subjecting my family or friends to being the people who are associated with a guy who wants to build a country? Like there, there's a lot to take into account when you decide to to put yourself in that position to go do something that big or that audacious, right? And so I remember just part of me pacing the room was coming to peace with what the sacrifice would mean for each thing, right? And then making peace with it and saying, yeah, like, come what may, this is this is the path and I'm going with it. And so the first thing I started to do really was I started to reach out to people who would tell me that this was the crazy idea, like, because I wanted people to poke holes in it. And so first person I reached out to was, I think, Balaji and he was like great idea I actually like would like to invest I'm like wait I didn't even reach out to you but I mean in an investment perspective I just reached out to really get your thoughts but he put he puts it out there that he would like to invest I then started reaching out to other folks within our tech ecosystem globally and they were just like no this actually makes sense and so eventually once we mapped out the the, the pitch deck and the four phases, we were then able to raise funding from our community, right? And then Balaji also came in as an angel investor. But those were those were the steps, right? And then from there, you're like, okay, what is our first phase? We need to go develop the passports. What sort of passports are, are they going to be? Are they going to be digital or physical? You decide to go digital. Okay, we're going to utilize them in the sense of NFTs. And we're going to make them art NFTs. Why art versus any other type of, of form of passports that exist? And what we then said was, it's hard to know where you're going if you don't have a foundational understanding of where you're coming from. And most Africans are disconnected from our history, whether it's due to colonialism or whatever it's happened in our past. We're, we're very disconnected from our history. And I think for us, we were like, when you think about Renaissance movements in, in the past, the first thing that people always reference is the art. What was the art that represented these people? When you think about Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, like it's the art that's always signified the progress of a society or of, or of a civilization. When you go to Egypt, the monuments are to the pyramids. It's always the art, right? And so for us, it was, okay, we're going to start with our passports that signify where we're coming and the storyline behind that. Phase two then was to go build this product. And when I tell you, this was the, my first technical product that I've ever been in charge of building. I have learned so much. I have much more different perspective. And I think it's also given me perspective on, on how hard this is going to be to accomplish. And I'm talking about just the overall vision, because we've not even gone to the land piece, which will involve real estate, which will involve a whole lot of other moving parts. But I think in each step, the reason you keep waking up each morning is that you know the clarity of your purpose, right? Like it, it's like days when I would be frustrated or when the engineering wasn't going well or when the product wasn't going well. What kept feeling all of us was we know the clarity of the purpose. So if we build this and build this well, it's a launch pad for even much more. And also, it's also a signal, right? It's a signal for people because the reason you put out a roadmap there is so people can hold you accountable to that roadmap, right? So phase one was their passports. You've executed on that and you've, you've sold out your first 500 passports. You said phase two was society as a service. You're going to launch 
uh, a product or an app to power the digital nation, you do it. And so what it shows again is you're hoping to attract this sort of people who are builders, right? People who say, okay, these are not people who just put out a manifesto and then said, okay, well, that's all, that's all we've come to do here. These are people who put out a manifesto and then doubled down with skin in the game to actually go achieve it. And so for us, you're looking to attract fellow builders, fellow people who are like, hey, I want to be part of that story and and making sure you complete and you're moving in, in, in the direction of your roadmap allows for people to see like, okay, you are actually different from potential nation states that already exist in Africa today, right? I think Afropolitan is a year old and we've already executed towards like phase two of our roadmap. And if you compare us to the speed of our execution, to the speed of nation states that exist in Africa today, it's night, it's night and day, right? And so what we're saying is, this is the sort of quality of work that we want to be able to achieve from a governance perspective. When you look back across time and say, okay, which would we rather prefer? An Amazon Prime type service of government or the current government services that we have today that are very slow or not responsive? And I think for us, that's the goal that we're looking to achieve. Okay. So having said that, at this point, there are two different paths. Well, there are multiple paths, but at least two paths that are very clear to me, which we could take uh, for this conversation. One is the more philosophical and societal path, you know, to look at Afropolitan. And one is instead looking at Afropolitan as if it was a product and try to decompose it and see how it works right so more the i think i think it's important to do both i think yeah. it's actually important to do both I, I don't think you can separate the philosophy from the product and i think that's something a lot of times silicon valley gets wrong it's like what is your actual world view of your product what are you actually trying to put out there you shouldn't separate the two right and i think that that's what makes a startup or or afropolitan a startup society right it's like you have to have a moral innovation of how you see the world and then build products that reflect that. I don't think you should build products without actually having a, a moral or worldview as to what do you, what is your, what is your statement on the current status quo of the world, and what are you trying to change, right? And I think that I don't think you should separate the two. Okay. I think the two go hand in hand. Yeah. Okay. I I actually love this direction. So let's try to analyze those four phases. According to mm-hmm. both principles, so seeing uh, each mm-hmm. phase as a product, uh, right, uh, and how you will mm-hmm. build it, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, also yeah. the idea, the deep philosophical thoughts that mm-hmm. power that mm-hmm. phase, right? Mm-hmm. But first of all, yeah. you started actually with a mission or with a statement. Uh, how mm-hmm. did you mm-hmm. came up uh, with that mission statement? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, was it that night? But you. You had a background at this already before mm-hmm. arriving to Afropolitan mm-hmm. and building it, right? You were already mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. activist, organizing uh, people, rally people around mm-hmm. a specific mm-hmm. cause, mm-hmm. right? How did you find yeah. for yourself that purpose? And how can others uh, that maybe are looking at you as an inspiration mm-hmm. find that purpose? I think COVID and the pandemic played a huge role in it, right? I think prior to that, the Eche of pre-COVID and the Eche after, like two completely different people, at least in my in my personal opinion. I think before COVID, there was a, I lived a Sodom and Gomorrah type of life. Like it was like literally like San Francisco, you're in tech, you're, you are like 
I'm, and I'm the one who's doing the parties, right? Like I'm the person who's literally organizing the parties, the concerts, the festivals. And it was a very fun, great Gatsby type of life. And I think when COVID happened and you were forced into a lockdown, everything is shut down. I think it forced me to sit with my choices, right? And it made me realize like, wait, first of all, I don't even know if, you're, if you've really even been happy of, for, of where you live. Like you never even spent time to just slow down enough to really look at your surroundings and say, do I even want to live here? Right. That's number one. Number two, it's you need to find out what your purpose is. It's not to say that the parties are not great because they were. They were awesome. But it's like, is that really your purpose? Like, I don't, don't you feel like you're being called to do more? And I think for me, in search of that purpose or in search of the frameworks that would allow me to to discover that purpose, I started doing a lot of reading, right? a lot of research. And one of the books a friend handed to me was The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. He's, have you read it? You've read it it's before, Sarah? Somewhere, it's, it's right there. It's right there. I love it. The I love Almanac. it. It's like a, I love it. one of my favorite books. Uh, also listen to Naval's interview and podcast. It's, it's yes, great. Yes. So I, I did both. I did both. And I would say to you that today, if there's one book that has the foundational underpinning of Afropolitan from our manifesto to our thought process from an application perspective, it's that book. Right. If you read that book and you agree with the principles in that book, you're an Afropolitan today, straight up. Right. Because for us, it allowed us to develop frameworks and principles for how we wanted to see the world and what we wanted to achieve, which was we didn't have to be either or. We didn't have to be activists without being technologists or we didn't have to be technologists without being activists. You could do both. You could have good governance that was at the scale of the same level of private corporation service without it having to be like a DMV where you're feeling sluggish and you feel like people don't care over here, right? And so those two things had to go hand in hand. And I think when I read that book and it articulated to me some of the principles that I held dear, but I'd never been able to articulate to myself, it formed the foundation of that. So our ideology for Afropolitan, for example, is one of abundance, right? So what does that mean? Abundance mindset, abundance of resources, abundance of opportunity. And it's not to say that even when you're in scarcity, even when you're in survival, the goal is for you to act in an abundant mindset even within that, because that's the that's a core value of being Afropolitan. I think the other thing was for such a long-term vision for what we wanted to do, one of Naval's quotes was, you have to be able to play long-term games with long-term people, right? And so what does that mean? Like when you unpack that statement, that means that first you have to be a long-term person yourself, number one. Number two, you also have to have the discernment and the ability to spot other long-term people. Right. Because it's because it, and then what tends to happen is a lot of times we get into either business or relationships with short term people who don't have a long term view. Right. And and if you have time to sit and reflect, you're not able to distinguish between the two. So what does that mean? Is this person going to be around here five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Again, obviously, barring deck, like we don't die. But these type of people who you can compound with. And I think another critical value was the aspect of compounding. Right, which was like you had to figure, find the best people, the best community, the best relationships to compound with, and that is how you would receive value even from your digital nation as well. So I would say, like when you ask how we got started, read the Naval book. If you understand the principles, if you identify with the principles, you will you will immediately understand from our manifesto how it inspired that and the thought process that governs um, our approach to even the four phases. Right, phase one is building a private network of the best of the best African diaspora have to offer. What does that mean? And it doesn't mean the best of the best means how much money you have. 
right? It doesn't mean the best of the best means how much, how much influence or whatever. There's an application process that we hope allows us to filter for the sort of people who we want within our founding citizens, right? And part of that is taking into account a holistic approach, right? It doesn't matter how much money you have, because at the end of the day, you don't want to build a nation of only aristocrats. You want to have a balanced view, but you also want the folks who might not have who might not have as much to also have a long-term view to stuff because sometimes I'm somebody who read, who reads the American story. I just finished reading the Alexander Hamilton biography, right? And how quickly the factions formed after they wrote <laughs> the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution mind boggles me, but it just shows you how humans were always human. And it's not to say that you can correct for everything, but it's always good to realize, okay, these are the mistakes that these folks made. How do we make sure that we don't make the same mistakes? And so in phase one, we, we decided to start off with 500 citizens instead of like 10,000 because we felt like 500 citizens was a good enough foundation to start off with to then lay out the foundation of your digital nation. So what did that mean? The first 500 um, citizens get approved. We then started off a project called the Culture Book for Afropolitan. So what does that mean? It's like you come into Afropolitan and you want to become an Afropolitan citizen. You need to know what the culture of Afropolitan is our values, our governance, the way that we see the world. And then you then know whether you want to be a part of this or you don't, right? And so it was very important that the community came up with those values because what tends to happen sometimes is companies come up with their values, right? They'll just paste 10 values on there and it's like, okay, cool. Like we now abide by this, but you don't actually live it, right? You're not actually held accountable to it. So it was very important where even me and Chica were not involved in the creation of those values it came from the community we just got to read it and review it and then approve and say okay this is what we this is what we also believe in but it came from the community itself and i knew it was very important because if 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 something is derived from the community then you can hold everyone accountable to it right this is not something that oh because Eche is a co-founder Eche gets to disobey or no no if i mess up and it goes against the values of Afropolitan, that is something that you can point to and say hey we are holding you accountable to what we agreed from a governance perspective. And so that's phase one. Phase two, again, the role Naval played in that was when I was reading that, he said there are two ways, or there, 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 there are four ways to build wealth in today's society, right? Capital, labor, code, and media, right? And he says capital and labor are permission leverage. Code and media are permissionless leverage. It's the permissionless leverage aspect of that that flows into the network state, right? Permissionless, borderless, right? Permissionless money, permissionless mobility, permissionless like ability to navigate the world, right? And it's it's the foundation of how we build and why we build, right? Because when we when we don't we're rarely ever given permission as Africans, right? Like globally. So we need systems and products that are permissionless because that's the only way we can include ourselves into things that are navigating the world, right? And so I just, I just, I don't want to go on a, a whole rant, but that book has played a, a huge role in, in how we're building on Afropolitan for sure. I want to double click on something that you said uh, regarding the application process to Afropolitan. So you started with this mission and, you know, inspired by Naval's book, uh, and then you mentioned before you started talking with people to stress test your your idea. Hey, I want I want to people to tell me if I'm crazy. What are the pitfalls uh, that I'm not seeing? Uh, you know, 
and and people believed in you you know also like notable people like what did you do then so how did you start to spread the word uh, about afropolitan and once afropolitan got uh, some traction and some interest uh, from people how did you because usually the way let me take a step back. Usually the way products are built is that, you know, you build this product and then you try to find a sort of a community that can be your early adopter, adopters in looking for what it's so-called product market fit, right? So how did you find the community first, you know, to to start marketing, marketing, you know, like Afropolitan? And then once you find that and people started really being interested in what you were doing, how did you screen those people? Because you talk about the application process to, to those 500 passports. So what were the criteria and the guiding principles that you used for coming up with this application process? What did it look like? So I would say, again, my background was... like events right so we i've been doing events since i was 18 so i would say like i've probably processed 300,000 tickets of events to my particular event so and that covers the entire african diaspora globally right and so what that did was it gave us a foundation of actual people you can't have a nation without actually having people right but what happened was you have gone from doing events that people come for fun and entertainment to now screening for a digital nation. And that's a huge pivot, right? But what but what I still had was the people, right? So the question then was, are you able to convince the people as to the validity of your digital nation and the idea behind it, right? And so when I think about Afropolitan or even Afropast within, within um, sorry, Afropolitan or, or, or the network state within that, it's, a, it's about conjoining different, perspective so when you think about a highly aligned online community you could you could just think about as a soul house that's just online right and so that's a membership club right so that's a passport it's membership card same thing right so that's access when you think about phase two which is which is the super app you're thinking maybe wechat or even apple as a platform right so people are already familiar with these concepts it's just whether they're familiar with joining them together even when you go back to the foundation of the land whether it's the chinatown or the embassy it's what people are already familiar with. So you're leveraging pre-existing user behavior. So Chinatown, almost everyone who's ever traveled has stumbled to Chinatown. Embassy, almost everyone who's ever traveled knows what an embassy is. So what you're doing with a network state is you're really finding a way to combine all these elements together into one purpose, which is obviously a hard thing to do. But when you break it down into these different pieces, you can see why people are like, okay, I understand the solar house aspect, but I might not be familiar with a WeChat from China. Or I understand WeChat from China because I've traveled to China, but I might not know about solar houses, right? So it's about educating people as to these things already exist in today's world. We're not really reinventing the world. We're just adding these different components together to form one other thing, which is a digital nation. And so with that, it was very important. I remember when the core team was deciding was we need an application because there was a world in which you could just put it out there. Anyone could buy the passport and say, I'm I'm an Afropolitan. The reason it was very important to have an application was you wanted to filter. You wanted to filter for the set of people like in that Naval's book, the set of people who could play long-term games, the long-term people, the set of people who had high integrity, the set of people who were looking to compound, right? Because 
again, for a mission like Afropolitan, it's a long-term mission. If you don't have people who, who think in decades, you're not going to achieve your mission if you're, if you're dealing with people who think a digital nation is going to be built in three months, right? So you have to have people who were also as ambitious and wanted to also be audacious as possible, right? And I think growing up in Silicon Valley, being surrounded by so much talent, sometimes I've seen talent that's not ambitious. I've seen talent that's not audacious, right? And then when I go back into Africa, because people are moving through survival, I'll see people who have the audacity and the hunger to to really get to the next level. And I think finding a way to combine those two things within an application was very interesting. And I think one of the questions we asked for people that helped us filter was, why do you want to be an Afropolitan? And how do you see yourself contributing to Afropolitan? And when I tell you that that particular question was one that helped us filter at least 80% of people, because what tended to happen was, let's say this was during the NFT craze when we released this, you have a lot of NFT DJs, right? Who just want to buy an NFT pump and dump. And most of them would could never help themselves by just admitting that like, hey, I just want to buy an NFT and I'm an NFT person or this is what I did. Or people who were just like, hey, I just, I'm just here for clout or I'm just here for the status of it, right? And you would just filter, 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 filter. And then there are people who just were like, hey, this is, and then there are people who just gave out. I could, I'm happy to share with you like some of the most beautiful answers and application that showed, that showed you they had really taken time to really think about why they wanted to do this. What was their reason for it? And you're like, this is the sort of person we want as an Afropolitan, right? And I think having questions like that that helped us filter was very, very imperative because now having been around the community for the past almost, is almost reaching a year now. You, you you feel proud because you really filtered for the right set of people. I'm not saying that we're perfect human beings, but when the conversations are always ones where people are thinking from an abundance mindset. They're always ones where people are winning help win, right? I haven't, I'm yet to see us, like even when we went through some adversity as a community, when last September, I, I believe we were, sorry, last December, we were about to launch the passwords for minting and our website crashed. And you had people in the Telegram just saying, no, you guys, let's just be patient. Don't worry, it's going to be back up. And this is without us even necessarily saying anything, right? And what struck me about that moment was I had seen other projects on Twitter. Whenever they had an issue, the mobs would just descend and just start tearing each other apart. And I was like, look, our website has been down for 20 minutes. And you don't even go on Twitter and see any negative comment because the people who've been accepted to even mince the passport at the right sort of people who understand, again, if your first reaction to adversity is to just throw everything away, then you're not going to be here for the long term. And I, I was, I felt incredibly proud in that moment because it, it, it showed me that we had made the right decision with the application process and in the folks we had also accepted through that process as well. So. What was your favorite answer, you know, to the question of why join Afropolitan and what would you contribute to it? Do you remember? I think the the common thread I remember were, were people who, we use this term in Africa or in Nigeria called Japa, which means to immigrate, mm-hmm. right? And the people who had had the chance or the opportunity to leave the continent maybe were in a potentially better frame of mind, but they, they had a missing or, a, a, or a, not, they had, they felt like something was missing, like a belonging for home, right? And what they would say was, I want to build something that actually matters. I want to build something that I can pass on to my children. It, it just feels weird that 
we have to play this survival game for the rest of our lives when that doesn't make any sense, right? And I remember one of the answers was somebody just saying to us, like, hey, like, somebody who's immigrated outside, I have a great job, but I reflect on this a lot, right, about what is our purpose on the planet and why is it that it feels like we all have to win lotteries just to reach an abundant mindset. And it doesn't make sense. I have friends and family and loved ones back home, and I've had to resign to the fact that those people will never be able to make it out because there are not enough visas that the West can offer to all Africans to leave, right? And so what does that then mean, right? It means you have to mentally get to a point where you forgo even thinking about those things because you're like, I'm I'm the one who made it out. And I think it was similar to the allegory of the cave. Did you ever read that, by the way? The allegory of the cave by Plato? Yeah, I did. I, I actually studied Plato in school I, I, as well. Oh, look, look at us. We're all philosophy yeah. majors out here. Awesome. <laughs> And I think it, that also helps, too, with the foundation of Afropolitan, too, because it's very important, again, like I said, to have a philosophy. But I remember reading The Allegory of the Cave and the moment when he comes back to the cave and he's saying to them, like, hey, those are not gods or those, are not, those shadows are not what you think they are. And because the folks have not been as exposed or don't understand where he's coming from, they end up killing him, right? And I think for a lot of us who end up fleeing and coming to the West, when you have made it to... And I don't even want to say the Zenit, but when you have made it to like a San Francisco Silicon Valley level of comfort, and then you look back and you're like, okay, what next? Is my life now optimizing lives at Facebook for the rest of my life? And to be fair, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're Black or you're African, to be honest, you're probably top 1% of Africans in the world. So you're telling me that the, our best of our best, their purpose is optimizing likes on Facebook for social media. I'm sorry. Like that's that's not the foundation that we were that we were born into. That's not the foundation of our history. We are literally descendants of people who've built pyramids, right? I just came from Egypt. And I don't say that as a way to like sound hotepish, but it's really our history, right? We were builders. You have the art, you have the beneath art. And I'm like, how have we been disconnected so much from that, that now what success looks like for a lot of us as Africans is if we can get a job at Facebook or TikTok instead of like building hard things like Elon is doing, right? And I think for us, it's we want Afropolitan to be a digital nation that attracts the best of our builders, the people who are ready to do hard things and leave a legacy for the people or for the for the for our folks coming behind us, right? And we want to reconnect back to the history that we had because it's not like we're starting anew. It's just this is our history, but we've been disconnected from it. So we want to reconnect to it and then get back on the path. It's not to say I don't want anyone listening to this to feel like I have an issue against Facebook or anyone working on Facebook. I'm just saying what I started to recognize being in the Bay Area was you would have a situation where, let's say, Eche works at Facebook and Eche is Nigerian and he has colleagues who are from like China or India or Saudi Arabia. And you'd see those colleagues maybe after three or four years of working on Facebook be like, hey, I'm leaving to go start a startup or I'm leaving to go back to back home. And you're asking them, what are you going to go do? And they're like, I'm going to go build this up to solve this particular issue back home that I see that there's a gap in. And then you would see the Nigerians just be stuck there because they're like, wait, can I even go back home to do it? And I'm like, after eight years of earning a six-figure salary, it's time to play purpose games, right? Like you cannot be the top 1% of our people and you're optimizing for likes on Facebook for ads. Like, I'm sorry, like this is not what we came here to do. And I think I was reading an article where the Chinese also discovered this problem, which is like your best students are looking to work in consumer tech companies like TikTok or, or ByteDance. And you're like, wait, 
but we're also supposed to be solving for cancer. We're also supposed to be solving for some other hard issues in the world. And you have a situation now where the best and brightest are looking to go optimize ads on social media platforms. And I'm like, nah, that cannot be what we came here to do. We can have that, but there has to be a balance where we, we do hard things and also can also do soft things too. And I think that that's, that's the approach that we're looking to encourage with Afropolitan. Yeah, it's not easy, however, to break free of that chain, you know, because when you are that comfortable and you're earning that salary and also society is reinforcing that, telling you that you made it, you're already successful. Why change, right? You said that 80% of people that answer came from and then passed successfully came from that question. How did you screen for the remaining 20%? So I think a lot of it is we, we would always ask people for their LinkedIn. We also asked people for how much time they were willing to dedicate to actually building the donation. And then we would ask people to refer people as well, right? And so there are a lot of like levels to screen. I, I, I will be the first to admit that I don't think it's the most perfect application, but for our purpose and for what we needed, I'm very happy with it. I would give it like a solid... B plus, right? I don't, it's really hard for me to ever get to an A because I'm I'm a Nigerian immigrant. My standards are always too high. But like, yeah, like a solid B plus. So you're like, yeah, I'm I'm happy about the sort of folks that we have within the community. And this is the people that we've gone to meet, and they span six continents, right? And we've gone to have Afropolitan meetups in different places in the world. And you and you're just happy with the quality of citizens you've been able to attract, and and you and you love that, you know. So, and I think. Also, something else that we debated too, because I think going back to the whole Naval thing, right? It's there are people who are like, "Hey, I want to be a part of this, right? And I want to help contribute, and I want to, I want to help do this." And they might have the best intentions, right? But that you also have to strike a fine balance between making sure your standards don't fall, right? Because you're playing like you want to play a games. And you want to attract A players. And most times A players might not really like to interact with B or C players. And then these are things that are very nuanced, right? So you 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 appreciate A players when you buy an iPhone or you interact with Apple products or you interact with a well-run product and you're, you feel like, okay, this was done beautifully. But most people tend to think very like equitably, like everything is equal, which it should be in certain aspects. But when it comes to certain things where... You wouldn't want somebody who was a D-plus player to be the bridge for your nation, like your physical bridge, right? Because if that bridge collapses, you're looking around like, hey, what happened here, right? I think the principle, the other guiding principle that we really enforced was one called skin in the game, right? Which is like, look, you propose something, you're the first one to do it. You, you, you develop a vaccine, you're the first one to take it. Like, and then that way, you, you make sure that people understand that that principle is core to everything. Whereas you don't get to propose or do or, or suggest things without you being the first person to actually go through it. So then we know that you're actually dedicated to the cause, right? Or dedicated to what it is that you're proposing. And I think when I combine those principles along with Naval's, I think you have a solid foundation for what a what a digital nation can look like. Okay. So out of curiosity, sorry, how many people were working with you on these uh at that point so i think when it came time for our passport we our passport launch we had a team of so we had artists we had four so i think internally we had a core team of 10 
And then informally, we had another advisory like of community members of another 10 people. So I think 20, 20 people in total would be, would be. And that was before raising any money, like the money came from the community or did you raise, raise some VC capital by then? No, so so we raised VC capital first, and then okay. the then the money from the digital sales came, came from the community. But the VC capital, and when I say VC, we raised investor capital, and that investor capital was also from community members as well. So I think about seventy percent of the people on our cap tables are literal community members themselves. So yeah. Okay, so. At this point, the passport uh, of our bot in the form of FTs uh, and listeners can find an episode where with, uh, I talk extensively with other guests about NFTs if they want to have more background of how, how this works. We'll link them somewhere you know, here on YouTube. So the passport are bought. What what is next? You know, in the roadmap, what happens at that point? Because a nation needs one one of the things that a nation needs is a constitution, which is maybe this is where maybe product and building a product and building a nation might differ. Like you need a strategy, but you don't necessarily need a constitution. You know, when you build a product, so. What what happens and how did you approach this? So we actually, it's funny because we actually have the draft of our constitution, right? We actually have the first draft. But I think, like you said, it's the balancing act between the the technology and the community, right? I think when you read the Network State book from, from Balaji, he says it's a community first and technology second. And I think that was always our approach anyway. I think when we first started, people were like, some people were like, yo, you guys raised, um, money where's the product right and you're like no it's a community first approach and then the product second because it it needs to flow into the values of what the community actually needs and so for us it was it was also important that before you even get to a constitution you also had a culture book like what does it even feel like to be here as an afropolitan what are our values right because before you start having a constitutional mandate it's like, what are our actual values? And I think when you study like the Afro- Afro- American history, because it's one of my favorite things to study, it's they never necessarily had a culture book, right? Because if you had a culture book, the first thing you would recognize was the, the cognitive dissonance between all men are created equal, right? And we hold these truths to be self-evident. And then three-fifths of, of, of for Black people, right? It's like, those are like cognitive dissonance words. And, I, and I'm saying like, if you had agreed on a culture book of your values before you even started a constitutional mandate, that's a launching pad. But I think obviously they had a lot of other things on their plate and it didn't feel like that was necessary at, at the time. But for us, it was very important for us to actually have a culture book first. And then the next phase for us is probably thinking through what ratifying that constitution actually looks like, right? Because then you're thinking governance at scale. And so we set out of the passports and then coming into this year, I think one of the things we then were reflecting on from a technology perspective was, man, the UI UX for crypto really sucks. Like, let's be honest. Let's actually have an honest conversation. Because 70% of the people who bought our passports were, this was their first digital asset, right? Like, so they didn't even really care about NFTs or crypto. It was more about, hey, this mission, I identify with this mission and you said the way for me to be a member is through an NFT. Sure, we'll go ahead and do it. And so, but what that also let me know is, when I use Apple Pay, right, Apple doesn't require me to know anything about what's going on in the back end. I just tap my phone 
It says it's been paid. I keep on going. When you use crypto, though, it requires you to know almost everything. Gas fees, the technology in front, the blockchain, this, the block. And you're like, wait, why can't we build better products that have a better UI and UX? And I think that informed our product decision making when it came to AfroPass, which was we're going to leverage pre-existing, um, pre-existing behavior of our community and then onboard them into a platform that gives them the tools that will actually have an impact in their lives, right? So what does that mean? It meant putting blockchain and crypto in the back, not the wiring in front, in the back. So when you come on AfroPass, Afro you're able to utilize certain services, but you might not even know a lot of your services are powered by blockchain in the back. And I'm like, why do they, why do you have to know? Like, do you, do you walk into everywhere wanting to see all the wiring of every tech or every building that you go into? No. So for me, it was, I didn't, I didn't, I still don't believe that a lot of crypto is being built in that way. And I think that's one of the principles that, that has guided even our product decision, which is if we're going to utilize this technology as a, as a foundation, it needs to be in the back. I'm sorry. Like the way it's currently being built is just tragic. And and it's something I've, I've we've had really um, long conversations about. And that informed our, our roadmap with how we, we built our AfroPass. And I'm happy to talk about the AfroPass strategy too, if, if you want. Yeah, sure. Please go ahead. And like, I mean, I'm sorry if this is breaking hardcore Web3. Yeah. <laughs> no. But- I mean, the UI UX is, is terrible. Like, like if my grandma can't use it, it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my grandma can use Apple Pay. And my, my thing is, that should be the standard. Not to say that we have to be Apple, but, like, it should be as easy for anyone to use. Well, no? to be fair, there is a learning curve with any technology. New te- Like, I mean, the, the first sure. time that an iPhone came out, you need, like, a of little course. bit of time of to learn how to use it, right? But one, yeah, one thing is, okay, I understand how to use it now. It, when I understood, it's like a breeze, you know, it's like second nature. Uh, whereas with crypto and blockchain, it doesn't feel like that. Even when you learn how to use it the first time, it feels like an effort uh, every time. You know, it feels like going through the... Every single time. F- jumping through the hoops of fire every single time, you know? So I- I'm with you on that one. But yeah, I'll be happy if you want to talk yeah. more about the strategy around the Afropast. Yeah, I can talk about a strategy. I can talk about a strategy. And I think what, what you need to also compare crypto to is AI, right? Once AI came, your grandma could use AI from day one, right? Like it's like, it's supposed to make your life better. That's what technology does. It makes your life more convenient, not to make you jump through fire over, over fire over fire. But, but okay, in defense of blockchain, however, blockchain was a technology that was born to begin with, to be highly inefficient. That was the entire purpose. Bitcoin was born, you know, to make sure that it was very, very painful to be used because it needed to guarantee that it would have been a digital goal. If it was easy to use, you know, and everyone able to tamper with it, it would have lost the status, right? So it was more like this. AI is not born like this. The problem is that we took that principle of Bitcoin and why it started, the way it started, and then tried to, oh, Let's build all sorts of stuff on top, stuff on top, right? Let's build like a new internet on top of this technology. But then it cannot work like the internet that we're used to, right? So like there is a difference and there is a balance there. But yeah, in general. There has to be, because I, I, I agree with the reasons for Bitcoin underneath. 
I'm just saying that when it comes to the consumer app space, yeah. it's like that doesn't need to translate there as well. No. Okay, so I think when it came to AfroPass, especially coming into the year, we know phase two of Afropolitan is society as a service, which is building a product or a platform that powers a digital nation. So you want this platform to be able to do things like eventually like remittances or payments for goods and services using the Afro tokens and just being able to govern the digital economy of a digital nation. But the thing is, you, you don't start off building a super app from day one. I think one of the folks who we worked with in building this was formerly worked at WeChat. And what he explained to us was WeChat didn't start off trying to be a super app from day one. For folks who don't know, WeChat is a platform in China. It powers almost everything they do in China. And it's a super app, right? And so he was explaining to us, like, what he learned from working at WeChat is you need to, to solve for the realities of the people that you're actually building for. Not like any other reality, but the actual localized reality of what you're solving for. So he was like, how did that play out in terms of WeChat? Right. He was like, take, for example, if you are a Chinese and you would normally stop over at your favorite restaurant after work or something, you order your food, you pay for your food, you go home. Right. When WeChat launched, you can most likely now message the merchant and say, hey, I'm on my way. Can you have the food ready? When I get there, I pay you and I go. Well, the evolution of the product is, hey, I, I've paid you or I can pay the, the restaurant through the app, go to the restaurant, pick up my food and be on my way. But the further evolution of the product is now I can actually have that food delivered to me after I've paid. And then from there, you slowly and gradually start to see the the the, the emphasis of a super app take shape, right? And it's not to say that it worked exactly like this, but what I'm saying is you leverage pre-existing user behavior of people and then you onboarded them into a platform that solved their everyday realities, right? And so for us, we were like, okay, what is our own reality as Africans or Afropolitans globally, where if you take an Eche from Nigeria, another Eche from South Africa, another Eche from Germany, another Eche from the US or, or from London or from Barbados, and you put all these Eches in one room and you filter for class, religion, and tribe, and we have none of those things in common, what would be the one thing that we would all be like, oh, yeah, yeah, like we're, we're, we have this or we're vibing to this in common? And what we realized was it was culture specifically maybe music culture or style culture. Like if we played a certain Afrobeats song or whatever, all of us would be vibing to it. But it didn't mean that we had to go build a music app. But what it did do though is it informed our thesis for Afropass, which is we would leverage our culture to onboard our people through, for, through the, fun the fun experiences, the music, the culture, the food, and then give them the tools in the back end that will actually have an impact in their lives. I think recently we just wrote an article um, talking about Dubai, right? How Dubai leveraged soft power for hard power realities. And I think that that's a similar tactic, which is the best way to showcase our digital nations to the world is show you what we're capable of doing from a cultural perspective, our style, our substance, our, our music. And then on the back end of that, give our folks the tools that will have an impact into their lives powered by blockchain, right? And so that is the approach from AfroPass. And I think I'm very happy about the product that we've built. I think I shared it with you, Sarah, in the chat. And when you go on it, the first thing you see, the first thing you see is like the beautiful UI, right? Again, these are African products. The first thing you see when you come to the Afropolitan art pieces for our passwords is how beautiful the art is. And I think beauty is a is a governing principle too for Afropolitan, not just beauty from a, like a like a superficial perspective. It's just to show you that like we're able to create beautiful things and build 
beautiful things that are aesthetically pleasing as well, right? Whereas I think when the world thinks about Africa today, it's always like, mm, it's like flipping, right? And I'm like, no, we want to show you that our talent is global and this is what we're capable of reproducing, but we have not had the opportunity or the environment to thrive. So it's very important that anytime we release something, anytime that the world comes to interact with what we have built, the first thing that they see is like, yo, this is different. Like this is, this doesn't feel like, this feels like this could sit with the apples of the world, or this feels like this could sit with any of the best or go toe to toe with any of the art, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, whoever that the world is like, Hey, those are the best. We want to sit in there, not sitting there just because we're African, but sitting there because it's like if aliens were to come down today and said, bring out your best, we want it to be just like, this is just what it is, right? And I think it's very important that as Africans or people who are looking to cater to that demographic, we let people know and show this is the beauty that we actually have to offer to the world at scale. Yeah, I come from Florence, so <laughs> you're, you're singing to me basically right now. So, And it's true, like the art... Uh, are always a strong signal of something that is flourishing, right? Uh, or something that is yes, blooming yes. and, you know, like a renaissance, a new beginning, right? Yeah. Because because history never history never remembers the, the bankers or the doctors. Never. Like it's not, it's not to say that they're not, they don't play importance, but like when you go back through history, like look at the Medici family in Florence, right? Like they did so much, but they valued the role of the art and played, which is why they were huge sponsors of it in the first place, right? So history over time, nobody remembers what bank was the greatest, like from 2000 years ago, but people remember the quality of the art and that's the stuff that gets passed down through generations, you know, so yeah. Because my theory is that actually as humans, we are meant, you know, like our spirits longs for the arts, yeah, for creativity, you know, our, like when you elevate humans one step above survival, right? And and they go from scarcity to abundance mindset, then our spirit, spirits really Mm -hmm. longs for, for arts and for to be creative uh, and to give yes, uh, birth yes. literally, you know, to... I love it. Yeah, I, love yeah, it. I, I totally believe it. I agree big time. I agree big time. I agree. Let's go back to this concept, which I absolutely love, of uh, society as a service, which, uh, you know, for people that build products, sounds especially familiar to the concept of software as a service or SaaS, right? So... And you and you did already like some paragons, you know, with with chat, right? Because it's clear that you need to build a sort of super app, right? So, what is the big vision? So, ideally, at the if the app is complete, what is an Afropolitan citizen be able to do with the app? And then let's instead decompose it and go like uh, ten step back. 10 steps back and and think about, okay, what is the the first piece uh, that you start building uh, and how did you approach it? What was your thought process? Yeah. So I, yes. So I think at scale and keep in mind, I'm not technical. So I've I've had to explain this vision to the technical folks who who help us build this. No, no, you don't. (laughs) It's like, listen, I don't think everyone that build products uh, here has ever built a nation. Mm -hmm. So. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so I think the way I think about it, it's a combination of a couple of factors and thinking about it at scale. So when the Afropolitan 
as an Afghan citizen, when you're using Afghan Super App in the future at scale, it's a combination of Estonia's e-residency program and Amazon Prime, and also financial services, all intertwined in one. So what does that mean? I want the Amazon Prime level of service where, like, I remember the first time I had an issue with Amazon, and before I could even say refund, that money was in my account. And they had me as a lifetime customer from that. Because then you're realizing that you're playing long-term games with long-term people on this platform because they're not thinking scarcity. They're thinking, no, what's the lifetime value of this customer? And so we're going to make sure that the customer, we're customer obsessed. So from a from a society as a service level, we want to make sure that we're citizen obsessed, right? Like what do the citizens want and how can we make sure that their lives are better? So that's the Amazon Prime level of service there. And it also delivery in terms of urgency. Like sometimes you deal with government services and it takes weeks or days or whatever. And it's like, how can we make this much more efficient, right? But there was also something I was thinking about recently, which is sometimes you do low-key want a degree of inefficiency in government. And, and we can go down that line later. But because I was having that thought yesterday while, while, while thinking through saying things. The Estonia e-residency program, we had the opportunity to visit Estonia earlier um, in May, and we got to meet with the folks who had built their, their program, right? And you, you got to see how they navigated. Like, Estonia is one of the most digitally native societies on the planet, right? And then for us, it was, wow, this is what good governance at scale looks like, because you're able to attract and access a lot of these government services through an app. The, the, the process is just so seamless, right? And I'm sure it's something similar in, in, in like, we WeChat, but that's catering to almost billions of people, right? Or even hundreds of millions of people. And so when I think about it, it's how do you make government a little bit more efficient, a little bit more citizen obsessed, and in a way that improves the lives of your citizens at scale. So even if you're a citizen and you're navigating outside, how are you jumping through hoops because your government has gone ahead to make sure that things are well for you? So I'll give you an example. When I went to Dubai or Abu Dhabi, the customs, the U.S. Customs Office is in Abu Dhabi. So do you know how much leverage and power you have to have for the U.S. as a government to put their customs office office 15 hours away from a flight across the world? Mm-hmm. And that to me shows a government that is forward thinking that says, you know what? We don't even want our citizens going through the U.S. customs stress in America. Let them go through it here. And then by the time they land in America, it's a domestic flight. They, they're on their way. And so for me, it's these are some of the core values, I believe, that when you start to apply from society as a service, countries or nations should function more sometimes like corporations, not totally, but in the, in the in the terms of delivery, right? You should be able to rate the delivery and the efficiency of your government and how well they're doing. And your government should feel like they have the right incentives to respond. Government workers shouldn't feel like they're going to work every day just to dial in. They should feel like, look, my our jobs are tied to how well we're able to do and we have incentives or bonuses that get paid to us if we execute well. Whereas today, if you're a Nigerian citizen, it is the worst type of passport and government you could actually like navigate with. We have struggles across everything, right? And then when you go around, you see what other citizens from much more developed countries are enjoying. And you're like, why can't we have that? Like, what is the what are they doing differently that we can't do? And I think for us, it's those are the when I think about society as a service, those that's the framework that I'm, I'm thinking as we build. So when we started off with AfroPass. Obviously, we're leveraging the cultural aspect of it. So what did that mean? It meant being able to, like, you know, showcase your culture, whether it's through events that we already had mastery at doing, and also being able to showcase the culinary. So you're thinking about culture, not just in music, but food, fashion, but also enabling the commerce that surrounds that. Today, African culture 
it's ex- like Africans or even honestly, like black people in general, we're great at creating value. No one disputes that, but we're poor at capturing it. And the reason we're poor at capturing it is we don't have the tools of distribution or tools of capture. It's something the West is so great at doing, right? Which is like, we create value, we know how to capture it. Or what does that mean? It's like, we find gold, we know how to get shovels to dig that gold out, right? But for a lot of times it's in, in an African context is the value gets created, but it gets exported outside of Africa for the value to get captured, right? So whether it's our oil, we, we, we have the crude oil, it gets refined outside. Whether it's our cocoa, we have the cocoa, it gets refined in Belgium or in other sites. So for us, it's like, how do we actually build the tools of capture and distribution, right? And I think with Afropass, that's what we're starting off with, which is, hey, you're a vendor. We actually just had our first vendor merchant transaction, like before we got on the call, and I was so happy for it because there was an actual pain point where, hey, I want to pay you. I'm in America, you're in Ghana, and I don't know what tools to use. Oh, you could use Afropass for it. And it was literally in the email transaction and in the email thread, and then they got paid, and it was it was seamless to go through that. And for me, it's if you're able to build that at scale, the level of prosperity and economic opportunity you can unlock globally for Africans globally is insane, especially if you're also building it with blockchain as a as a as a factor, especially from a monetary perspective. Because then it allows you to bypass a lot of the of the roadblocks that have been put in our front, where it's like, oh, you can't do that, or you're not able to do that, or you're not able to do this, or maybe the color of your skin prevents you from not getting this particular job. With blockchain, one of the reasons I love blockchain for all the blockchain enthusiasts out there is is the first time where you get to be judged on merit. You don't need to know my skin color. You don't even need to know my name. You just need to know if 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 my whatever meets setting criteria, and then that's that's what I get judged by, right? And I think that's I would rather submit to the rule of code than to the rule of man, if that makes sense, right? Because it's like when you think about money and you think about in God we trust, it really is more of in man we trust. But in code we trust for me, it's much more better because code, in my opinion, is math and it's much more equitable, right? So what does that mean? When Bitcoin prices go down today, it goes down for anyone who holds Bitcoin across the world, anywhere in the world. When Bitcoin prices go up, it goes down, it goes up for everyone who holds Bitcoin. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Asian, whoever, if you're Muslim or Christian. That's the same sort of laws we want to abide by from a network state perspective, right? Which is today in Nigeria, our currency can be going the other way due to bad government choices. But then you could be a Nigerian living somewhere else and maybe you're able to earn in dollar or whatever, and you're not necessarily experiencing the same things. And, and some of those choices that affect the reason your currency is going down is because of policies set by other places in the world that have nothing to even do with your country as well. So I think, I feel like I'm going on a rant, but those are like the, those are the frameworks that helped establish what we started off with. Okay, so this is like covering the the philosophical aspect, if you want, and, you know, your, your thought process. But then... If you hold like a pass and you're building a nation, you need to be able to do something, right? With this pass, you need to be able to, I don't know, I can't imagine generating some sort of economic return because a nation needs like an economy, you know, and to produce some sort of GDP, right? It also needs laws and a clear picture and rules in which to operate. So... How do you think, do you think about providing those concretely, you know, in a society as a service format? Like society as a service already makes me think that there is like a sort of pricing model or tiers associated to it, right? 
Yeah, and I, I think I think we're developing what those tiers are, but the way we see it is like your citizenship could be a subscription, right? Like similar to how you subscribe to Amazon Prime every year, that's that's how you generate revenue from a network state perspective, right? Again, membership in the network state. When I think about laws, right, can our laws be in the form of smart contracts, right? So they're enforceable in the code in of itself, right? So what does that mean? You you violate or or you're 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 going to a grocery store or whatever. If you're utilizing some blockchain in the back end, you're actually able to make either payments or receive payments through that as well, right? And if everything is already embedded in a smart contract, I'll give you an example. When we did our NFTs and, and we sold out of our NFTs, right? Before the before we launched in the smart contract, we said okay, ten percent goes to the artist, mm-hmm. right? This other percentage goes to the smart contract developer. This this this. And then what happened was as soon as the, the it got sold out, because you had their wallets in the smart contract, they just got dispersed. What that showed me in real time was the beauty of the tech, right? Which was in, in today's society, you might have had to go talk to HR or accounting or do this or do that. Or sometimes there are disputes arising from people just not getting paid what they have been what has been agreed on, right? But because we agreed before. And then we embedded that agreement into a smart contract. It just it just dispersed it based on the agreement we'd had prior. Not, okay, agree first. And then we still have a debate after because the person who controls the purse strings still gets to decide whether they're going to respect this rule of law or not, right? And so for me, it's when I think about the framework of governance from that, I'm saying, how do we, how do we create a, a society where the laws are embedded in the smart contract itself. So even when it comes to, to budgetary concerns, before money gets dispersed for a particular project, or for a particular, like let's say you want to build a road or a bridge, that should be tied to certain milestones, right? And those milestones should be tied to things like maybe proof of stake or proof of work, right? Before this gets dispersed, can, can a, a majority of people go to the bridge and say, hey, this has actually been 50% completed. Now you, get, you can get 50% disbursed to the contractor, right? And the way I think about it is if you can leverage technology from that angle and apply it to governance, you can actually allow for a much more equitable and transparent and an accountable government model than what we have today. Right. And that's the way we're thinking about it as we build. I don't know. Does that make sense to you, sir? Yeah, absolutely. It does. But again, so are you building the infrastructure for people to be able, you know, to transact and to with clear rules, right, uh, regulated by blockchain, you know, so automatically executed. But then you have to incentivize people to transact uh, and create the economical uh, opportunities to do so. You need to be able to create businesses uh, like, uh, you know, so how, how do you... And we already, we already have, we already have that. So for example, leveraging what we did with the year of return, tourism and entertainment is a huge one. It's a repeatable thing in any African society because people always love to party. Right. And then there are businesses, there are businesses that cater to that through, through that um, ecosystem. And I think for us, it's, we already do this manually, right? This is a, we're just automating it with the tech now. So their businesses are already there to cater to the demographic of people that we we want to serve. Now you're just saying to them that the way you get paid though is through our platform, right? So we now need to onboard you as partners, and then we bring we create a marketplace that brings the people or our community to you for these services. And if you're a preferred partner, you get to be rated based on that through AfroPass. So if someone is able to come on AfroPass and say, okay, cool, I'm looking for this particular service. You're referred to the service. You're able to then pay that particular vendor or merchant through through that. And then you as the platform or you as a nation 
collect a transaction fee or, or a fee or commission fee for enabling those sort of transactions as well, thereby also generating revenue for your nation. Are you thinking of these as a closed economy? like only for members with the Afropass or as an, mm-hmm. at least at this stage, because a nation ideally is able to transact with everyone and is widely recognized. So I know that ideally yeah. this is like an open economy, okay, that you're thinking about. Yeah, it is. It is. But- so, so the way we're thinking about it is similar to the Dubai structure where Dubai welcomed the world in. But then in Dubai, they're the Emiratis, right? They're like the higher level of citizenship. And then there's everyone else who might be a residency or, you know, they're on visa or you're there as a tourist, right? And so that's the way we're thinking about it. So today on Afropass, when you go try to sign up or log in, there's a flow for you as an Afropolitan citizen. And then there's a flow for you as a non-Afropolitan citizen or just you're new to Afropass. And you get to see what we have to offer and interact. But that flow is a way to create and let you know that there is a citizen there's a difference between being a citizen and a non-citizen, right? And and citizens get to enjoy much more better perks and much more better benefits. And the idea is you apply for citizenship through Afropass itself. So yes, it is it is open to anyone to come, but there is a citizen track and it is a non-citizen track. Is it possible as of now to apply for a citizenship if you are not one of the original yeah. 500 citizens? Yeah, so, so, we're, so we're going to be releasing more citizen passports and it's going to be through the application process. The reason we hadn't opened up the next set was we wanted to embed that citizenship process through Afropass. I, I won't lie to you, I wasn't a fan of all the NFT minting and NFT campaign <laughs> things. It's it's not to say that I don't, it's just to me, it was like, <laughs> you go try to apply for Amex, or you go try to apply for an Apple card or whatever, you can do it within the app. And you can, if, if technology, sorry, if technology doesn't make your life more convenient, it's not technology. I'm sorry. Like, we need to actually go back to first principles. If if I still have to do what the cavemen were doing, then it's like we're just retrogressing backwards. And so for us, it was how do we make it in such a way where, and obviously you're always iterating on products, right? So that never stops. But what I would love for us in crypto to acknowledge is there is a standard that we need to say to ourselves, which is until we are as seamless and as as like easy to use as what we have some products in web to allow us to do, we need to keep striving. Like we have not arrived, right? And I, and I think for sometimes I get the sense that some folks feel like we've arrived and I'm like, no, there's still so much more work to do to get this to the level of UI and UX that's that's great. I don't want to go in that rat. But the reason why we hadn't launched the other passports because we now wanted to do it within the ecosystem of Afropass. So you go on Afropass, you're able to apply for a citizenship and then you're able to pay for the, the citizenship fee through Afropass itself, all in one seamless transaction, right? And I think for us, that that made much more sense from a scalability perspective. Yeah. Whereas I think back then, back then, what you would have to do was do NFT campaigns every other drop. And it was just, at least for the community of people that we were serving and we hope to serve, they're not the biggest fans of that. And it just doesn't scale, right? Like, and I think what we're seeing now, especially in the beer market, is a lot of the NFT projects are not necessarily where they used to be. NFC still play a role, but I think it should just be embedded in the same way as you would go to a solar house or go to any other membership club when you go to Costco, right? If you go to Costco, you could just get a membership card right there after you've paid. And I think it should be that it should be that way as well. So yeah. Yeah. I think was it Starbucks that has executed this Starbucks, pretty well, yes. I think, right? Yeah. We're probably gone. Yeah. yeah. So that, that I thought was like an interesting experiment. Okay. 
I want to move quickly to phase three, which, uh, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, it's the phase that's coming after this one. So just to be clear, right now you're yeah. you just release phase two, and you, of course, uh, this is going to yeah. be like an ongoing process and ongoing effort because literally mm-hmm. you're you're building like mm-hmm. the infrastructure that mm-hmm. powers all of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. But phase three, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, the ma- minimum viable <laughs> state. States. Correct. Yeah. Minimum viable state. Okay. Yeah. Can you please define what's a minimum viable state and how do you think to, yeah. to build one? So I, I love that question so much because I, I always feel like the phase three is actually It, it, it starts in phase one, phase two, and phase four. So you'll never stop with phase three. Phase three is ongoing the entire time. So minimum viable states, how do you build the credibility needed to be viewed as a country one day, right? And so the, the pathway to building that credibility is a long road, right? So first it starts from your manifesto. Then it starts from, do you actually have citizens? Do you actually have interests? Do you actually have allies, right? Do you have media out there? that's spoken to what you're, uh, you're doing. And I think you build up that long line of credibility because that's the track record you want to be able to refer to when you go start having conversations with governments for pre-existing to get recognized as a country. Because they need to, they can't just, you can't show up as Eche one day and say, hey, recognize me today, right? You have to be to build up the credibility where people can go back and say, oh, you've already executed on so many things where you do have the credibility to be recognized as a country because you already have the foundations of that already embedded. So the way we think about it is even things as subtle as being recognized by the New York Stock Exchange was a huge thing because the New York Stock Exchange is a 200-year-old institution. It's almost as old as the United States, right? So a 200-year-old institution recognizes you, then tomorrow it could be the United Nations, right? So that's that's the that's the perception or the, 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 the not perception, that's the... Um, marketing PR perspective of it when you're talking about the minimum viable state. When it then comes to services, when we offer things like visa and arrival services for our our citizens, you're not able to offer other types of services, right? So again, going back to what AfroPass is going to unlock. So you're not able to show your citizens, okay, you can actually send money to other citizens through this. You can actually make payments for goods and services through this. You can actually potentially pay for fees or government fees, especially if you're going to partnerships with other governments globally, right? This could be actually a foundation to say, hey, we already see and view Afropolitan as a partner because we work with you on these other aspects of things, right? That's, again, that's within phase three. When you then think about the physical land component of it, you're talking maybe free trade zones, right? Dubai has a bunch of them. A lot of countries have free trade zones. And you're saying, okay, Let's start off with a free trade zone model and then leverage that for the actual sovereign land model eventually, right? Again, these are things that just build credibility for you as you go. And I think you never stop with phase three because every action you move, every point you put up on the board is another point on your credibility, right? Which is why I was saying it was very important that we showed that we could even build a product like AfroPass, right? Because we're, like, we're not technical founders. But we had to show because the community helped us build this as well. So you first had to show you could create a community. You have a community. You've, you have passports for your founding citizens. You now have the platform that can actually power that digital nation for you. So, again, it's it's why it's very important to build up that credibility as you go because phase three is an ongoing state. You never stop until you reach recognition from pre-existing states because that is where you will then get sovereignty or be recognized as a sovereign nation. Mm. 
But maybe it's not a good time to to go back to that bookmark that we did earlier mm -hmm. when you said that mm -hmm. governments should have some degree of inefficiency. Why do you say that? Yeah. I was, so I'm just going to be honest about what my thought process was around that because I realized, especially because I was thinking about AI and how efficient AI can make things, right? But that on the, on the other hand, most of us sometimes say we want government to be efficient, but we also don't recognize about recognize sometimes when we count on government inefficiency and it's actually helpful for us. All right. So I'll give you an example. In in a society that like let's talk about taxes, for example, right? In a society that's very efficient and very like blockchain focused or whatever, right? And the government is super, super efficient. It means any transaction you make, we can track it back to you. Everything is like really right there on chain. Most people don't realize that like they don't count on governments being able to tie everything in together. So from your immigration, like the immigration department in the U.S. is a separate entity. The IRS is a separate entity. A lot of these departments are separate entities. They, most of them don't share data because if they share data, you'd be able to actually build a holistic profile of anyone who was coming to the country. But because you have bureaucracy and government bureaucracies and people have to fight over their fiefdoms, because they're not sharing any of that data, you might benefit from all of that not being in one place. But if you had an efficient government where, Sarah, wherever you go in the world, we know where exactly you're doing, whatever exactly you're spending, we can track every cent of it down to the latest dollar. You're like, oh, like that's, you weren't necessarily thinking about it as a problem before, but you would realize like, oh, that is a little too efficient for my liking. You know what I mean? It's like, you would actually prefer it to be a little bit more slower, a little bit, a little bit more inefficient. And then it works out in your benefit that way. I don't know if that, if that example makes sense, but I was thinking about it in that way where like there, there are quite a few government inefficiencies that we depend on as citizens when you're thinking about yourself holistically versus like if that government was really super efficient across everything, you might not really be a fan of that at, at, at the end of the day. Like it's like, because it, it could then cross into the border of privacy and, you know, whether you want certain things to be private or other things not to be private. So it's, it's a balance. Yeah. That, that, was the, that was the thought process. How do you think? Yeah, that, that's an interesting thought, actually. I think it's particularly relevant if you think about CBDC, you know, and like now the European Union, for example, is going really all in, like into you know, rolling it out. And, you know, the goal is over time to replace cash fully, right? And and cash allows for, you know, some some inefficiency, right? And, and for things to not be tracked, to be private. So I think this is a very interesting thought. How do you think to inject this level of inefficiency into Afropolitan, like these just about right level of inefficiency in Afropolitan, considering that it's entirely operated through the blockchain. I think that's why when, and this is just my initial reaction, I, I can tell you right now that it's still something we're chewing over and thinking through. But my initial reaction is to have like a balance between smart contracts and then human discernment in a way where there are nuances that might not necessarily, the code might not be able to tell. And, and so I'll give you an example of why I was thinking about these current inefficiencies. I was thinking about it from a context of illegal immigration, especially into the U.S., right? Where if you really wanted to fix that problem, if it's an illegal immigrant who comes to the U.S., they have to spend money, 
at some point. They have to buy things, whatever. So you could literally, if you had all those things connected, you'd be able to see where those transactions are taking place and you can pinpoint it to the immigration. But the, the, the way the U.S. immigration system is set up today, the USCIS does not touch the IRS. So I don't know if you know this, but you could be an illegal immigrant in the U.S. and still pay taxes and the IRS doesn't care if you're illegal. They're like, look, I, as long as we get our money, that's all good. And so you're saying to yourself, why isn't, why are all of these government departments talking to each other? And the reason most likely is, first of all, most of them have like their own turfs. They don't care to share. There's a lot of maybe politics and egos that go into that. But if you had a really efficient government, if I know where you spend money and how you spend money, and I know that, and I already have your immigration records because you're not, you're not a citizen or whatever, I could just find you from all those places and, and then take you up. But people, by and large, depend on those government inefficiencies to navigate the U.S. or to even navigate other countries, right? And and so the question then is, again, the question about like how you feel about immigration and all those types of nuances, I was just thinking about it in that framework of sometimes you do want government to be inefficient a little bit and not too efficient, because if it's too efficient, you might really not like a super efficient government, right? And again, I think this is like a philosophical debate thing because on the flip side of it, if it was super efficient, then transparency was would be at its core at every time, every time. And so if you as a community decided that transparency was better than privacy, because sometimes it could be a, a tug of war between those two things. And if you said, you know what, despite all of it, we would rather be transparent and then let privacy maybe come second. That's a decision that you can make as a community together, right? And and if you abide by those laws, then you can put that in a contract and then live by it, no matter what. Because yeah. then you wouldn't have any holes for corruption or, you know, when politicians steal money and then they hide it over here or do this or do that. If transparency becomes your core value, despite no matter what, then a, a society can agree to those sort of principles and, and abide by them. Yeah, I mean, if you if you define transparency as the ability to track everything that your population does, right? This is what yeah. most dystopian novels are about. If you read mm-hmm. 1984 from Orwell, or if you read yeah. Brave New World from from Huxley, you know, they're all based yeah. on this total transparency or or total control, right? Like uh, Orwell with the Big Brother. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Huxley goes a step farther in Brave New World uh, and it knows his the population uh, so well uh, that it's able to predict uh, and engineer exactly, mm-hmm. you know, w- yeah. who sh- you should become, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So there is certainly, like, some some good thoughts, some, some good intuitions but, there. But I, I do... But 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 what do you think? I, I do agree. I do believe that our community could agree to which of those values they believe take priority, right? So, for example, I would say, like, when we think about it from an African or African context, we have not had transparency and accountability for so long that those have to be the, the, the some of the core values that govern us because it's like, how do you make sure that we're just not repeating the same mistakes as what our nation states have gone through? So transparency and accountability have to be very core values, right? But then I think... The part of why we chose even that, that Alexander Hamilton quote was you still have the ability to reflect and then choose. So if you've chosen a path where you might have had the best intentions and maybe after some time you realize that that might not be the best path for you, you should be able to reflect and then choose differently. And I think that is what 
in a lot of nation states and even in a lot of society is missing a lot of times where you make laws. If those laws are not as effective anymore, you change them, you repeal them. I don't see why you like what's what's stopping us from doing that versus. And, and I think that's how society should govern. Laws should reflect your living everyday reality. It's not something that was created 200 years ago and it does not reflect the reality today. And you still feel like you have to abide by it just because it was created that long ago. I don't think, I think laws should be living and breathing and reflective of the current states of things. And if, if you do need to change them, a consensus should be reached and then, and then th- those changes made. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult as, as the system grows and it becomes more complex, mm. you know, so you build more yeah. rules and regulations to preserve the system. Mm-hmm right uh, and you make it increasingly yeah. more difficult to change things uh, and on one side this is can be done on purpose for the good right you don't want like a despot you know a dictator yeah. rising to power and makes him or like a very conservative party even like let, let's leave like dictatorship right for example you don't want mm-hmm. a very conservative party to come to power and make it you know easy like mm-hmm. this for them to change things right you want of to course. preserve like some degree of inefficiency right but at the same time when the system becomes too polluted and too polarized also you know to guarantee change this is where I agree with you that the nation state, the concept of nation state mm-hmm. as we know it, it's maybe yeah. coming to an end. And now we're seeing yeah. two different forces. On one side, we're seeing this, this, you know, force towards pushing towards the center, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. creative massive superpowers, a nation that aggregates closer to each other like you know the european union for example it's a bunch of separate mm-hmm, states mm-hmm. they are trying to mm-hmm. you know find a common ground together because standing alone they have no chance uh, of influencing uh, international mm-hmm. politics right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then instead you have other forces that goes towards the periphery you know the edges uh, so you have yeah. groups inside different mm-hmm. states trying to you know like like claim their own independence and finding their own mm-hmm. voice right here in europe mm-hmm. we have a bunch you know like in ireland and in spain you know that even organize themselves into terroristic groups you know to claim their own independence so you have all these and all of these i feel it's because we lost the ability to think of states as not just mm-hmm. government governing bodies mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. actor of change, you know, like they, they can't, yeah. they have a design yeah. in mind. They have like a vision of how the world should mm-hmm. be. And then they try to yeah. portray this vision. Execute. Yeah, to execute exactly. it. Exactly. I have one last question. Uh, sorry for, for this rant. Mm-hmm. I have one last question, Eche, because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. building a nation. You're building a product. Mm-hmm. And you have built a community also around it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you take a step back, you know, and you're looking uh, to all those things that you're building, right? Mm-hmm. What are the differences and the main parallels that you can find between building products versus building uh, a community in a nation to go with it? And why building a community is so fundamental today? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the tech used to be a you you would always have a moat with the tech like like when Apple came out right there was nothing that we had seen like an iPhone before when when the Facebooks or the MySpaces back then social media was so near. I think after ten plus years of having access to that tech, what you then realize is we've been sort of over teched out. We've been over advertised to. There's been like a lot of us now can spot the fakes from the real, or like at least some of us, like, you know, when you interact with tech now, you're much, you have much more of a maturity because you know what to expect because you've used it for almost 10 plus years now. So there's much more of an intuitive grasp. And, but when I think about community, community is, and, and, and it's just a simple definition. It's like, you're a part of a community if within that community, people have concern for each other's welfare. Right. That's just a simple like definition. It doesn't need to be any grandiose idea. It's like in your community, do you have concern over each other's welfare? And that welfare can be from mental to physical to social to to financial. Right. Like, how do you care for each other from that perspective? And I think community is also emotional bonds over time. You can't code community. Right. Like you can't just go on your laptop and put some code up on GitHub and then you have a community. No, it's about relationships. It's about compounding. Right? It's about how long have we known each other? How much do we trust each other? How can we grow together for a common alternative? But I think when it comes to being a tech product, you're always trying to solve for inefficiencies. You're always trying to solve for iterate. Right? Like when you notice a bug, you try to fix that bug. Right? And you try to make sure that those bugs are not features. They're just bugs. Right? And I think in community, you also want a similar thing, but you also have to be fine with certain bugs because those bugs actually can add value to the overall nation. So, for example, when you think about what makes the nation, it's not just a nation of founders or a nation of technologists. You have to understand to have a well-rounded nation, you need to have philosophers, you need to have artists, you have to have creatives. And I think sometimes in Silicon Valley, there's this whole thing of, oh, yeah, yeah, just build a community of founders and everybody who's looking to build something, just a community of builders. It's like, no, you also need a, a community of singers. It's a community of poets. You need a community of people who do other things that are not necessarily in tech because when you have a holistic society, they each add value to each other. And going back to what you said of when you're now moving from an abundant state, the goal isn't to like be the most efficient robot possible is to unlock the beauty in each of us to be much more creative. Right. And I think all of us have the potential to be creative, but if we spend most of our time doing things that take away from that, you're not able to achieve those things. Right. Very few of us are able to reach that zenith of creativity where you're like, look, this mattered. And this was the art I get to show to the world. Right. Like it's your baby, right. You grow it. And I think even as we've built this product, and we have guided it. It's like there's a special pride you have when you, you because when you and I first spoke, I said, Sarah, like I just literally showed you a Figma, right? And I think a couple of months later, I can now show you the finished product. There is a, there's a special feeling that unlocks with you, even if nobody gets to use your product, just knowing you started something and you finished it, it's already a builder mindset. And I think every society needs to know what that feels like, whether it's from a, if you want to sing a song or if you want to create a piece of art, like it, it should be a holistic sort of society. I don't believe it should be just one where you just have only founders or, or only technologists or only people who are technical. I, I think that for me personally to have stumbled on Afropolitan, I had to have a multidisciplinary approach. I had to have been somebody who studied political science, went to law school, pivoted into fintech. So I had a tech background, but despite all that, I was also in entertainment. So I was able to do 
the parties, the concerts, the festivals. And so what it did was it gave me a framework of how to navigate the world and understand different nuances. And I, I feel much more richer internally for that because I'm able to work into the different rooms. And based on my background, I'm able to relate. I could be a lawyer today. I could be a government official tomorrow. I could be an artist the next day. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it, it is fun when you see yourself being able to access all those different parts of yourself and not feel limited by any box you're being placed into. But at the same time, you want that opportunity for everyone, that same opportunity for everyone to experience that because that's where the abundance comes in. I don't think we should be relegated to just some, like thinking through survival or, or scarcity all the time. And I think that that's something that we hope to change with Afropolitan. Echa, I, I really would like to thank you, you know, for, for this very long interview. Is there, is there a, yeah, we went massively over time, I think. <laughs> is there a final thought or something that I didn't ask you that, that you think it's important to cover before we, we wrap up? I think we we covered a little bit about this, but I think when he said, when Balaji said, because the brand is unthinkable, we fight over the old. I think that also serves as a filtering mechanism as well, because I guess today when I look at society, there's just a lot of fights, like always fighting about old stuff. If you go on social media, it's just factions just going at each other. And it's like, where's the space or where's the society or where's the community for the people who just once you imagine the brand new, the people who have a much more optimistic viewpoint of what we can achieve as humans versus the people who approach it from a scarcity mindset, which is like, you win, I lose. I win, you lose. And it's like, I I, I want more people who have that mindset to speak up much more because it feels like we're consistently getting drowned out because the people who are in the factions are the loudest voices in the room because obviously their passion, they're fueled by the hate and the passion. It's not to say that I've never felt hate or whatever, but I try to be sort of productive with like and challenge into a much more like optimistic approach because I mean, at the end of the day, we're really all like, we're just humans and we're only here for a limited time. So why not actually imagine the brand new and go through the unthinkable versus sitting down, wasting our time fighting about old stuff and not really progressing as we go. So I think that that's something, that's that's one last thought. And I think when I think about Afropolitan and the sort of people we're looking to attract, if you're on that mindset, if you've read Naval's book, you identify with those principles, you believe in skin in the game and you want to see something different, then you should definitely join us in accomplishing this mission. Etcha, you know, I've been pondering, I'm very glad that you say this, because I've been pondering this this quote, which I don't remember who said mm-hmm. it, uh, but it kind of stuck with me, that despair is just mm. lack of imagination, you know? Mm. And it kind of, yeah, I've been pondering about it for a while, you know? So this really, I love, I love that quote. Yeah. So really, I love that quote. what you just say really brings it home a little bit farther. I really yeah. want to thank you so much, you know, for, for really answering all my questions. Uh, I have more, but maybe I leave the rest for, for a part two. Maybe when we, when we go to the next phase of the Afropolitan journey, mm-hmm. And we will leave all your contacts and where people can learn more about Afropolitan as well as the resources that we mentioned in the the show notes. And with that being said, again, thank you so much. 
And for listeners, we'll see you at the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.